Canucks Central Tuesday. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah here in the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. It is a game day. Battle of the Brothers Hughes coming up 7 o'clock tonight at Rogers Arena. We'll have a uh, pregame show coming as well, 6 o'clock for that, 6.30 on Sportsnet Pacific Canucks and New Jersey Devils, the Devils who have uh, won 14 of the last 15 meetings between these two clubs, surprisingly. But uh, it's, uh, for whatever reason, been a tough one for the Vancouver Canucks. We'll get more into the game a little bit later on, but uh, Sat, I know a lot of the discussion has been uh, about a reflection because today is the day that... Changes were made with the Canucks front office two years ago today, to be exact. And we essentially have two years of a resume now to work off of with Jim Rutherford as president of Hockey Ops with the Vancouver Canucks. He was officially signed December 9th, was it, that he officially took over? So it'll be uh, two years Saturday. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux initially took over. His first game was December 6th, two years ago. But president of Hockey Ops, Jim Rutherford, and you start to go through it a little bit, and you see just how much has changed since Rutherford has taken over. How would we rate the job that he's done in the two years since taking over? I think that he's done a – I think as a management team, I think they've done a very good job of turning this roster over and putting them in a position to, at the very least, be back at the playoff bar. And I know there's been a lot of discussion and debate in this market about uh, do the Canucks have enough to ever put this core over the top? They don't obviously have the amount of assets you would like to be able to put this team over the top, whether that's cap space and or actual assets in hand to be able to do those sort of things. But it doesn't mean you can't do it. And I do believe they've taken a team especially at the end of the Jim Benning era, that was a a really tough reclamation project or a full-on rebuild. Like that's mm-hmm. one of the two options you really had here. It wasn't, you, can, you can't, you couldn't just throw money at it. It had to be some sort of a step back in some way and then a step forward, you know? Yep. And I do agree when you have Pedersen, you have Demko, you have Hughes, you shouldn't just blow it all up, Right. And I think they put themselves in a position now where they can actually perhaps do something with this core over the next couple of years. Like I think right now it's a really good spot they're in, but I do think over the next two to three years, there's a chance that they can be a powerhouse team. And the fact that they've been able to do that within two years, I think is impressive. It's uh, It hasn't been um, smooth. <laughs> at at uh, many points, there have been uh, quite a few rumblings, right? And, and most of it started... Uh, obviously, we remember the Boudreaux bump, right? But we quickly learned that Bruce Boudreaux was not Jim Rutherford's hire. Mm-hmm. And that the timeline of Boudreaux coming in a few days before Rutherford, as much as that was highlighted yeah. in that very real timeline, um, we didn't find out until after that first season finished. And that end-of-season news conference, which rings true for everybody now, and everything that happened afterwards. So last year did end up being a bit of a step back. But with their cap situation, with you know the end of the Benning era sort of being uh, 
pushed forward by the Oliver Ekman Larson Connor Garland deal that has blown up tremendously. They had to recover from that. They were right up against the cap. Cap wasn't going anywhere. It was flat. They had a lot of things that they had to move off of the roster in order to bring stuff in. And that was only going to happen with time. So when I look at the job Jim Rutherford has done, while I know there's a lot of people that would have preferred the full-on rebuild, it's pretty impressive how they've been able to essentially change over what is it, 60 to 70% of the roster in two years' time and put this team into a position where you can see with a couple of more smart additions, they can be almost as good as any team in the Western Conference. They have nine holdovers, and yeah. a lot of those include you know, it's Miller, it's Besser, it's Pedersen, uh, it's Garland, it's Hoaglander, Hughes, Myers, and Demko. Like those are the guys that are still left here, right? So that means the other 14 spots are guys that, yeah, maybe a couple of prospects like, you, you know, Juleson who was here a little bit and, you know, that overlapped and, and stuff like that. Sure, there's some guys on the fringes and everything. Well, even Phil DiGiuseppe was signed by Jim yeah. Benning. And, and, you know, these guys retained him. And, yep. But nonetheless, yes, guy that was in the organization. So there are some guys there, but over half the roster and a lot of meaningful roles are different. You know, they've brought in a Kuzmenko, who we're still waiting to really get loose this year, but Mikheyev as well. And then you go through the guys like Suter, who's injured right now, but, you know, obviously Bluger, who's looked good. Lafferty, who's been such a great addition to this team. Susie, before he got hurt, looked really strong as well. Philip Peronik, that's kind of been the ace up their sleeve. They needed to make a move that was going to work out in a big way. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Bo Horvat thing happened. Before that, what they had done was, yeah, they added a Kuzmenko. They made some nice moves around the edges. You could tell the pro scouting was stronger. But they needed to really make a big switch to set the team in, into a position where they could be taken seriously. And all of a sudden, instead of just having one good defenseman, now they have two. And two that are really good defensemen, yeah. right? That was the big swing this team made that has worked out in a massive way. Everything else is positive, but the one home run they had to hit, they hit. The Bo Horvat trade. And, you know, to, to get Philip Peronik out of it, um, now what we're seeing... Yeah, there's still, I think, you know, there's still an element of time that will decide how much of a hit Philip Peronik is on this roster. So far, 25 points in 25 games, hard to really argue. But you will always have the pessimists that say, well, if it doesn't result in any significant winning, then what was the point of it all? I'm not really here for those conversations. You have a lot of difficult pieces that had to be moved off of this roster, some difficult decisions that had to be moved off of this roster. And they found a way to manage it, but also improve the team significantly, if not in their overall talent level, but just get a team that was, if we're being honest, not well put together. Oh yeah, <laughs> A lot of square pegs and round holes and find ways to maneuver around that that maximizes the talent that they took over Elias Patterson, Quinn Hughes, Thatcher Demko, all that. You know, it's funny. You know, sometimes we talk about having success. It comes down to the most simple things. Yeah. 
it's give yourself a chance. You know how we talked about this Canucks team last year? It's like, hey, in, instead of having these really poor shifts and then going a minute 30, like give yourself yeah. a chance. You mm-hmm. know, like live to see another shift. You Don't know, try to hit a pocket. home run yeah. at every plate appearance. Exactly. Like, you know, give yourself a chance to get on base and do something to help yeah. your team, not just go for broke every single time you're out there, right? That's not trust. That's You're not trusting your teammates. You're not playing good team hockey. You're never going to win consistently playing that way. And if you, as an organization, haven't put to players in places to have success and have guys for good designated roles. So what, what they did w- was, the most simple thing they can do was, let's get rid of players who don't fit a role here, and let's find guys that can fit roles. And let's make sure that, at the very least, we raise the floor of our team in key spots with guys who know what they do are doing, say, defensively, and let's say on the PK. Now, the PK has been a sore spot, but it's still not historically bad. Like it had been the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Like this year, it's at least getting, at least, it has been at least better than what it's been last year. Now, clearly, it has to improve. But you see personnel that actually fit. I think right now, it's not so much, you can't point at personnel on the PK, you point towards they have to execute better. Yeah. The coaches have to find answers too. That's the, they have to do a lot better in terms of their execution. But now, when you look at their defense and the players they've added, you look at the forward group, Pew Suter, for instance, too, who hasn't played so far the last little bit, but look at Teddy Bluger. They didn't have credible third and fourth line centers the last couple of years in Vancouver. Yeah. Dickinson wasn't really an everyday center. Now, no. he's played well in Chicago, but he's playing the wing and he got off to a hot start last year and it tailed off. Like, it really depends on what you're asking of these guys. And I think now you have a team, actually. You know yeah. how we joke about Pierre Dorian saying we have a team? <laughs> and I think in, in the in the not-so-sarcastic way, they actually have a team. Yeah. They have a team that you can look at and say, oh, they have players who can fill design roles. And um, look, as a president of Hockey Ops, uh, you know, Patrick even said this on the weekend when he was asked about you know, his relationship with Jim Rutherford and if he's taken a few pages out of Rutherford's book as a general manager of being aggressive on the trade market and all of that. And essentially, um, the point is Rutherford is very smart about how he goes about his business and he's still the big picture operative here, right? And he's the one that set the tone from the beginning of the big picture, how they were going to retool, not rebuild, and start to put a front office in place with Patrick Alvin, Emily Castongay, Cami Granado, and the, and the rest goes on and on and on. And, you know, from an organizational perspective, there is a lot more and has been a lot more cohesion from where he sits at the top of the pyramid down through the different levels and you see it in how they're scouting players, how they're acquiring players and the coaching staff. It seems everybody is on the same page and that's kind of what you are um, grading a president of hockey ops on to a certain level. And I, maybe it's because the previous regime set, set a low bar, but I do see a lot more of that cohesion within the organization starting to play out on the ice and how this has all turned out. Well, the cohesion, I think, is a big part. And, and and it's not even so much about having more people. It's about having a better environment in terms of how people work together and have success. And, yeah. and guys making decisions are doing it for the right reasons all the time. You can always manage upwards as well. You can you can keep separation between church and state. We're not sitting, sitting here and talking much about what the owner is doing nowadays. Yes. You know, and I think there's a big reason for it. The team is having more success. The moves that you see seem more professional and, and well thought out. doesn't seem like decisions made on a whim. And yeah. all of a sudden, you're not seeing people point towards the owner. And I think you're seeing having that separation now. 
at least it's greater having a president, having the general manager as well. And just to kind of remove a lot of the noise. And I'm not saying it's the owner's fault, because sometimes I think it's easy just to point towards that and say, well, you know, that's what's going on or whatever it is. But you clearly didn't have a management team prior at the very top that could manage upwards properly. Mm -hmm. That was a big issue. Yeah. And now you have a guy who's won Stanley Cups, who you trust, who can talk sense in big situations. I think that makes a big difference as well. And you're seeing the team operate a lot better. It's not like the previous management didn't have good people in place in certain spots. There's a reason why they drafted talented hockey players. There's a reason why they still had some good pieces here. Yeah, It was about the cohesiveness of everything, the true leadership at the very top and having people that are making the right decisions for the right reasons. Well, and it felt like um, organizationally... Um it was one year we want to get stronger and or we want to get faster and more skilled. Another year we want to get stronger and tougher to play against. And it was just like constantly changing what they wanted the team to be from an identity perspective. Whereas yeah. I don't feel that same issue with this current regime. No, you don't, right? Like You don't feel like that's something that's going to get in the way. They know the type of hockey team they want to build and they're, they're trying to build it. And, and you know, this, we know we talked about this so much throughout the, the past few years leading up to the, the change in management about how this team has to find an identity and, and find a philosophy about yeah. how you're seeing the game, how you want the team to play. And none of us knew what the team was aspiring to be, truly. Mm-hmm. You know, they said one thing, did another. The coach wasn't sure exactly what needed to be done. It, 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 was, it wasn't a cohesive plan, right? Now you know what the team's looking to do. So all of a sudden, when you're scouting players, you know what you're looking for. You eliminate a big list of players you don't need to look at. Not that you don't, you're not open-minded, but you just know these types of players and depth roles are not going to fit our team. Yeah. In prior years, you saw the team add a top six guy. It's like, well, he's, he's a good top six player, but how is he fitting with mm-hmm. you? Where is he playing on your team? You know, it's not just about building a team on NHL, you know, yeah. 2023 and just Does getting top six guys together fit with yeah. the players you already have. Do you, I mean, you know, we talk about it so much now, but everybody knows there are three forwards that have three different roles. Yes. And it's very clear what they want the first forward to do, yes. what the second forward to do, what the third forward to do. So if you have three guys that are, you know, F2s for instance, yeah. well it's going to be a problem putting those <laughs> two guys together on a team, right? So just think of it that way. So yeah. you got to find guys that can, you know, have their styles mesh and fit and play a cohesive team game. You're seeing that in terms of how they put their team together. There's more they have to do, right? Like it's still an incomplete grade. Two years in, I think they've done a good job, but they put themselves in a position now where you can legitimately say they're a couple moves away. Yeah. Before it was like, well, you know, they kind of need to add this guy, that guy, one of these players, one of those players, like four or five moves away. Within two years, they put themselves maybe a couple of moves away. And that's, I think, what's exciting, you know, because I, I like what they were doing this year. I think it's great that they can establish themselves as a powerhouse team again, hopefully, that even if they're not, let's say they get 107, eight points, maybe they're not quite as good as a 108-point team come playoff time. But if they add one or two more players, right. next year you're a 108 or 110-point team and you're contending. And then your window may have opened up for two or three or four years. Yeah, And that's, I think, what I'm excited about. And they've got themselves to a position now where there are a couple of shrewd moves away, Dan, from being a real tough team to contend with. One of the um, the things, and it hasn't been all perfect. <laughs> Last year, there was quite a few issues as they tried to work through what was, you know, the one step back to hopefully take two steps forward. And they seem to have taken one step forward. Will it be two? We'll see as, that, uh, as the season goes on. One of the things that has been most impressive is um, their understanding of the market, whether it's the trade market, the free agent market, yeah. um, what players are worth, and mm-hmm. when 
not to overextend, but also when, you know, well, Philip Aronik is going to cost this. It's a tough price to, 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 yeah. to swallow, but if we want to fix our right shot defenseman issue, this is probably what it's going to take. So, you know, in hindsight, as much as I criticized it in the moment, there was a realization over the course of the summer and seeing how expensive a mid-20s right shot defenseman that can play in your top four, credibly play in your top four with some scoring upside as well, is going to cost. So there's more of an understanding today than there was when the day, when the trade was actually made. If you look at their work in the free agent market, signing Pew Suter to a very team-friendly contract at a very uh, manageable number at $1.6 million. Um, same goes for Teddy Bluger. Even like Carson Soucy and Ian Cole, like Soucy, you could say maybe it's a little expensive, but, you know, there were other suitors and he's still under the age of 30. So the price was going to be the price, but convincing Ian Cole to come here over another contender after he was just with the Tampa Bay Lightning. I mean, I think there's a lot of selling their organization on players that can help and not having to overextend with money and term to do it like they did in the past with Jay Beagle and Antoine Roussel and those types. Yeah, and, and I think as much as uh, Vancouver hasn't had much success the past decade, right, There's there, the city is still a, a draw. Yes. You know, we heard how this offseason players were intrigued about Vancouver, even guys who didn't end up signing here that, you know, wanted to come to Vancouver because they love the city. And now when they feel like, hey, the team is on stable ground, they have a management yeah. team that knows what it's doing, it just makes well, players... Well, there's an intrigue of working with Rick Tockett and right? Adam Foote and Sergey Gonchar for a lot of guys, too. That plays a part into it. And obviously having the elite talent, and I think that matters as well. So you have things going your way, but you have to be able to sell it. They've been able to kind of sell that. And in terms of Carson Soucy, even, so we, yesterday we talked about Zadorov contracts. Yeah. Zadorov and Soucy are very similar types of players, and guys like them get paid between 3 to $4 million. Most of them get 3.5 to $4 million. So yeah, Susie, maybe they they took a bit of a bet on him. Yeah. But if he's exactly the same class of player as the guys we mentioned yesterday, the Brendan Dillons, you know, uh, even Jake McCabe, who got four by four, Joel Edmondson. Mm-hmm. Like if that's a caliber of player, they're all making three and a half to four million. You got Susie at three point two five over three. Those guys usually get four years. Yeah. So in some ways, even even at the time you look at it like, well, maybe it's a bit expensive. When you look at it in relation to the type of player they're projecting him to be. It's still a bit cheaper. So you're seeing, like, even on the margins, they're, they're still looking to save a little bit of money wherever they can on some of these guys they sign. So I do think it, it's just been a lot more professional in how they've gone about putting their team together. And the fact that they've given themselves a chance now two years in, that's the most encouraging part. Because, hey, hey if, if last year went sideways, but if certain things don't go your way, you make the one wrong move or two, you might have been stuck for another four to five years and then maybe been, been forced to hit the reset button. What they've done these next two years is, is actually salvage the wreck, so to yeah. speak. And still a lot of work to be done. There's no denying that. You know, Their work on signing Elias Pettersson uh, is still a big part of the equation moving forward, but things are in a much better spot today than they were when Jim Rutherford initially took over. And a lot of our listeners feeling the same way. 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Raymond, let Alvin Cook. Been so impressed with him. Um, you know, like Alvin has, he's taken over the public speaking duties yeah. from uh, from Jim Rutherford, and he's obviously a big part of the equation. But it does feel that the front office is... And he tries to make sure that we know this, but it is a very collaborative front office. 
today for the Vancouver Canucks, I would say. Yeah. With Jim Rutherford still leading the way. 100%. But also, like, the input to take from other people. Yeah. It seems like it's not just, you know, one or two people making the call. Now, obviously, the GM and the president wield more power. So if they wanted to make, have, they have final say. And I'm sure that it has been empowered at times because that's just the reality of uh, those types of situations. But that's what you keep hearing. And I think it's not lip service. Mm-hmm. I think they do trust a lot of their uh, scouts they've brought in and people that, are, that they rely on for on player evaluations. And like we've discussed a few different times, there aren't many players they've missed on. Yeah. In terms of pro players they brought over, either tweeners or guys who, you know, are more NHL established, they haven't really missed on anybody. Studnika's the only guy you can look at and say, okay, like maybe he's not what they thought he would be. But even him, like, is there a chance he gives you some depth minutes at some point? It's not even, you know, completely over yet. But, like, it's hard to point out one guy and say, hey, they, they evaluated this player poorly. Um, even, like, the ones you could make the argument for, not huge prices they paid maybe uh curtis lazar um you 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 might say that but you know they ended up getting a fourth round pick for him anyway yeah. so it didn't really turn out all that poorly with with him turn him into an asset at least um you know oliver ekman larson they had to make a decision there yeah right like that's going to be a tough pill to swallow come you know when the, the the two years that it's going to be expensive but yeah not to rehash it again, but you had to make a decision given how expensive he was going to be and the fact that this was the most optimal year to buy out the contract and get the most cap savings out of it. Yeah, and you are, you know, it is going to eat into some of the cap uh, space that is going to happen with yeah. the cap rising. It eats into some of that, but it get, it's still not bad enough where you're done and you can't do anything with it. But they, they have a couple moves they still have to make. I think as well as Garland has played in his role and as much as he's a net positive, and we went over the numbers yesterday. If you missed the show, you can go back and listen. But if you're looking at signing Hironic and and Pedersen and then keeping the core guys together, mm-hmm. like you can sign Zadorov and keep him and maybe bring in a Tanev type, but that pretty much is it. That That's pretty much all your flexibility. So how much different is that team and the team you have this year unless you open up cap space? So that's still, as much as they've done a great job of opening cap space, moving Bavillier, getting Zadorov now, they're still in a spot where they need a bit more. And if they can turn Garland into some cap space, then you can talk about not only improving your defense, but improving mm-hmm. your forward group. And if you do that, Dan, now you're knocking on that door of being a top contender in the league. Like uh, Garland, uh, Garland, Suter, Joshua were pretty good together, have been pretty good together. Even Garland, uh, Bluger, and Joshua have been pretty good together, but still not enough um, bottom line, you know? Um, it's about uh, the top uh, six, right? Yeah. Like you can fill those guys, right? And as good as Garland is, but they need another top six guy that can lean on players. It's it's hard to swallow the the five million dollars you're going to Garland when he doesn't fit into your top six currently. Yeah, as we've talked about so often. So those are the moves that still have to happen. There's the biggest one, of course, Elias Pettersson, and maybe still finding a long term fit on your back end if it isn't Tom Willander in the future, but. There's a couple of big moves they still have to make as a front office, but as we outlined, they've come a long way in two years with Jim Rutherford. We'll uh, welcome Irfan Gaffar into this conversation as well. His take on the non-update update with Elias Pettersson from yesterday and more coming up on Canuck Central.